I'm not glad for any of the suffering. And I don't think God gave it to my mom or gave it to, you know, that people group, my people group or me. Um, like it was like him just placing it there so that I could know him. But as I, as you read it in that quote, I mean, I think he, he has used that to create such intimacy with him and such, you know, these spaces for lament that have drawn me deeper into relationship with him and deeper into just even knowing the suffering Christ and just being able to find comfort in that and kind of look back on some of those stories, even the ones that aren't my own and see that God was near. If it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out, then Queen, we have a few questions to ask and a few conversations to have. I am your host, Liv Dooley, and I cannot wait to introduce you to some of the women who inspire me to fall more deeply in love with the word of God and worship in everything. I am so grateful you were here. Let's go on and get to work. Hey y'all, it's me Liv and I am so grateful you were here for another conversation of the best kept secret. How's your week going? How are you enjoying the start to November? Are you slowing down? I truly hope that you are. Regardless of what season you discover this conversation in, it is my hope that you would take time to enjoy the presence of the Lord. For those of us who are here in November, it is really a joy to slow down with the seasonal changes and spend a little more time with Him and I do hope that you allow his presence to wash over you, to renew your mind, your soul, and your identity in him. Today, I am incredibly excited about our conversation. I mean, really, y'all. This whole season is blessing my little heart, and I hope you can say the same. If so, would you take a moment and head over to wherever you are listening to this podcast right now and leave a rating and a review. It would really help others find this content. And it is my hope that these conversations have been a blessing to you, especially as we understand how to worship more fully in every way. It's my hope that you would want others to find this content. So I do thank you in advance for partnering with me in this way. And I'm here today to read an older review from Jester Lady, who said, Liv is so passionate and kind and hardworking. It truly shows in these conversations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate those words. And I am grateful because they continue to motivate me. Today, we are going to be having another enjoyable conversation, another delightful conversation. <laughs> it continues to bring a smile to my face as each and every one of these conversations do during this season. And I'm really grateful for the time that our guest spent with us and the depth that she helped us to enjoy as we continue to talk about the theme of identity 
and how it can help or hinder us from moving further into worship of the one true God. When I think of our text for this season, first and second Samuel, I cannot imagine a more secure man in his identity than Jonathan. I mean, really, y'all, have you ever taken the time to think about Jonathan? This dude is Saul's son who was in line for the throne. And even though he went through a lot of different things with his father, he's still one of the most secure men in all of scripture. He recognizes who David is. He recognizes that David has the Lord's anointing. And he does all that he can to ensure that David will become the next king, even though that certainty posed a threat to his own safety, posed a threat to the security of his children, posed a threat to everything that he is supposed to stand for. Mm. Y'all, now that is security. He knew who he was in the Lord. Jonathan knew that his identity as a child of the one true king overpowered everything else, even as a child of an earthly king. And he knew that it was his assignment to ensure that he could help David. I have never encountered another man in the scriptures other than Jesus himself, who was willing to lay down his life for someone else. And that is why I think that Jonathan is a type of Christ, one that we don't acknowledge enough. Yes, David is a type of Christ. He foreshadowed our coming prophet, king, and priest. He did that. But Jonathan, he's the one who chose to lay down everything that he was entitled to, put himself in harm's way, and help David become king. That is also a type of Christ. We first find out about David and Jonathan's friendship in 1 Samuel 18, and it's here that Jonathan removed his robe when he made a covenant with David. He gave it to him along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. But that robe is incredibly significant. It's one that we see repeated over and over again in scripture, whether we are looking at Genesis and the significance of the robe with Joseph, or we are choosing to take a moment to remember the prodigal son and the robe that he was given when he was restored to his relationship with his father. When we see someone give their robe over to another person, we see that they are acknowledging that that person is on equal footing with them, that that person has a right to everything they own, that that person is someone to be respected, someone who is going to inherit great things. And here, he gives him this robe to show everyone that David has his approval, that David is on equal footing with him, that David has access to anything 
that he has ever been entitled to as the crown prince. But Jonathan doesn't stop there. He makes another covenant once David begins to go out on the run from Saul after he leaves his home with Michal. And, you know, Jonathan doesn't really believe that David is in danger for his life because he shares at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 20 that his father tells him everything. However, David insists, no, your daddy is trying to get me. And what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 20 verses 13 through 17 takes my breath away. The end of verse 13, Jonathan says, May the Lord be with you, just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. May the Lord hold all your enemies accountable. He has effectively given up his right to the throne here. How was the Lord with his father? He was with him when he anointed him. He was with him when he gave him access to rule all of Israel. He was with him in those first few victories. So how will he be with David? He will do the same. He will be with him when he gives him access to the throne to lead all of Israel. Who is he going to hold accountable? Who are David's enemies at this point? David's enemies primarily consist of Saul, Jonathan's own father. And Jonathan is bold enough to pray it, displaying one of the most secure identities in the Lord in all of scripture, because he shows that his choice to follow the Lord overshadowed anything else that followed that identity, anything else that was secondary, even if it required his life or the simple luxuries that he should have been entitled to. I am motivated every time I read about Jonathan, not to look for a friend like Jonathan, but to look at how I might become a friend like Jonathan. And I hope you are encouraged to do the same. Let's all invite the Lord to speak to some of those areas within our identity that continue to lead us to cycles of insecurity. And let's trust him to make us more like himself in every way. I am so grateful you are here. That time, y'all, my co-host Ty and I are here with another woman you should know. Ty girl, how are you? I'm doing great, Liv. How are you? I'm good, and I am so excited to hear who you are introducing us to today. Who yeah. is this? 
Yes, yes, yes. Today I'm introducing Sharonda Dream. She is the founder of Dreams Global and she is a divine, bold, underlined, divine dating strategist. She teaches women of faith 30 and over how to fulfill plans and date a quality man. She is also a doctoral candidate in community care and counseling at Liberty University. And her newest exciting role is the Wing Woman, an online dating matchmaking service for her clientele. That's so dope. I mean, first of all, can we just talk about how full this is life is. She is a doctoral candidate at Liberty University while helping to steward these different introductions for others. That that is that is amazing. And I will tell you that I'm encouraged to hear about this particular area that the Lord has led her to because I have lots of friends who I'm always looking, you know, around to think about who do I know? Who would be good to introduce them to? But to know that there is someone that is also helping in this area professionally is definitely an encouragement. And I know that as someone who is steeped in the word, as someone who is steeped in relationship with the Lord, she is definitely going to help women because that marital status isn't what defines our identity, but it is definitely something that can enhance it when the Lord gives us that desire in our heart. So that's dope. Yes, I, I agree. And I'm I'm always looking at my friends too, like, who can I send to Sharonda Dreams? So <laughs> Sharonda Dreams is a woman you should know. We're going to link everything down below. We want to get connected. You know, I truly do appreciate how many different areas the Lord calls us to in the kingdom. Doesn't it just show us how unlimited his capacity is to love and lead us to really serve him in every way? Today, I am excited to introduce you to someone else who I am incredibly grateful to have met someone who deepens my love for the Lord and how many different subjects he speaks to. I mean, really, there is nothing that our God does not care about, especially when it concerns us. And today we are going to continue talking about the theme of identity and how it can hinder or help us to worship him more fully in every way. Our guest today is Tasha June. Tasha is a biracial Korean-American melancholy dreamer. She grew up in a multicultural home, and because of that, she spent her life navigating cultural collisions and liminal space. She writes about faith, cultural and ethnic identity, and living with a shalom sick ache. Writing has always been the way God has led her through pain and toward the hope of shalom. Tasha lives in the Midwest with her husband and three kids. She is the author of Tell Me the Dream Again, reflections on family, ethnicity, and the sacred work of belonging. Would you please help me welcome Tasha June to the best tech seat. I am really looking forward to this conversation. Oh my goodness, Tasha, how are you? I'm good. I'm so, so thankful to be here. 
Yes, yes. We have been working on this and, you know, all the things for some some time now. So this this feels good. Can you tell us about your book and particularly the significance of the title? Sure, sure. So yeah, my book is called Tell Me the Dream Again. It's reflections on family, ethnicity, and the sacred work of belonging. Um, and really, it's a memoir and essays. A lot of it um, and a lot of it, I tell stories about my mom and then stories about my faith journey and just how those two are intertwined. Um, and tell me the dream again, that first part, the actual title that comes from a conversation, a real conversation that I had with my mom, um, multiple times. And so growing up, she had this recurring dream and I describe it in the book, but, um, and so me saying, tell me the dream again is me wanting her to tell me that dream over again. So yeah, that's <laughs> real dialogue. Yeah. Ah, awesome. It was a wonderful book to read. And even as an African-American, I resonated with so many different things that you shared in your story. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of questions from your book. And the first is, you know, you talked to us about how hard it was for your family to find a church that you could feel welcome in as a child. And you continue to discuss this theme as you recounted your adult years too. And I deeply resonated with the point that you made about how you would count minorities, you know, as a child that might be in the congregation of different um, churches you went to, or even as an adult, as different conferences that you went to. Mm -hmm. I find myself doing the same. So can you share some advice today, particularly for those church leaders who may be listening in, that we can implement to help others feel more welcome? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think the first thing, um, and it doesn't seem that practical, but I think it's really important. I think the first thing is to to realize that, you know, we have a growing, I mean, like the demographics of our nation is changing and has been for a while. And we have this growing population of, you know, mixed kids from all different backgrounds um, who are kind of have been walking this line, you know, in between worlds. And so, um, I think realizing that that's part of like our nation's direction demographically mm -hmm. um, and that these aren't just like singular side stories, but that they're a big part of who we are as a country. And so, again, who our churches should be reflecting, you know, um, so um, I think that's a first step. I think just kind of just being aware of that and that really kind of shifts I think the way that we might consider welcome, right? Um, when we think about like, not just as an ends to a means, but when we think about the fact that this is a reality for a lot of people. And so how do we meet this group of people? Whether it's one or many, but how do we meet them um, where they're at and just realize that some people are coming with, you know, not only just this, these stories of an upbringing where it was hard to fit, but now, you know, their families are also probably, you know, a mixture of people now, you know, um, and trying to, to, to make space, I guess, for all of those different aspects of who they are is really important. Not just assuming that they're going to just, you know, mold right into the majority of the congregants there. So, yeah. 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 That's good. So for those who might have, you know, um, a leadership board 
on either end of the spectrum, right? There are Black churches, there are Asian churches, there are white churches. But for those that may have a leadership board that is that lacks some diversity, mm -hmm. how can they begin to incorporate, you know, those changes in? Should they talk with those that are uh, of mixed races or different races than the makeup of their leadership board? Should they, how can they be a little more specific and strategic in doing mm -hmm. that? I mean, I definitely think if there are people in their congregation, um, they could talk to them, and and it's mm -hmm. it's always worth it to um, put yourself in a listening position of another in any situation, right? And so I think um, to to be able to reach out, listen, and learn without um, kind of putting this pressure on the other person of like solving the problem, you know, or, mm -hmm. or, you know, mm -hmm. coming up with all the ways that they can move forward because they might, they might not be interested in that or even, even have some awareness of their own story or, you know, how they feel yet. And so I think there has to be some sensitivity there, but yes, I think talking to people and just being willing to listen to them, um, being willing to, um, try new things and, and really just think back, like with a critical eye of the way that you do things, like, is this something that we just do because it's always been done here? Or are there other ways that we can approach worship? Are there other ways that we can approach, you know, even theology and just, you know, what else is out there, um, mm -hmm. that can impact that, that I will allow to impact me and how I lead. Um, so I think, yes, listening, um, building relationships with people that are different, especially if they're in your congregation, but also in the city that you serve as a congregation. Like, I think, you know, we're there to to serve the city or the neighborhood that we're in. Um, so really looking at that and being aware of who's actually there um, and then taking steps forward with those questions and with that listening posture, I think. I think that can go a long way. <laughs> it seems like such a small and simple thing, but I, I really, sometimes I wonder how many actually do that as opposed to just, we need to change everything. Let's go forward and solve it. We're going to be the heroes here. You know, there's, there's a difference. Yeah, that is so good. I love how you spoke to, you know, the variety of places that you can pull information and resources and assistance from without placing all of that pressure on your congregants who may not know how to fill that space and right. may not want to. So that yeah. was just so helpful. I often encourage people to ensure that they are listening and learning from a diverse body of believers as well, because yeah. that can definitely give us different perspectives and you you spoke to that too so thank you you know one of the things that i was interested in is how you talked about colorblind theology mm -hmm. and you said that colorblind theology has always been a sugar-coated death threat to everything Korean in me. It mm -hmm. pretends to offer something sweet but it does so at the expense of deep connection and community and my goodness i i resonated with that i thought it was so poignant you continue to talk about false unity versus true unity can you share with us what those differences are and how we can cultivate true unity yeah um i'm no expert on this because i think unity is really difficult um, i don't think it's very easy but um but i will say that i think in my own journey 
you know, when I started to be more vocal and um, wanted to bring more of my whole self into situations that I cared about, especially faith communities that I was a part of. Um, and also when I responded to the kind of just, you know, the things that have been happening in our nation, well, forever, but also like within the last five years and how it's brought up kind of um, just a lot of divided corners, you know, just, I mean, just a lot of little pockets. We we have so many separated areas now. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I feel like when I've started to respond to that and started to wanted to bring others into that, there was kind of this response. And I feel like fear was underlying all of it, but it was, it was this response of, well, we need to be unified, like this fear about how divided everyone is. And so the response is we need to be unified because unity is, yes, it's a good, good thing. Um, And it is something that God calls us to, but really no steps on how to do that. And what I often felt was that this response was we need to be unified. So stop talking about the things that you're talking about. Um, it wasn't said directly that, that way, but you know, when you just feel it in the room, um, you feel like you're the one ruffling everyone's feathers. So if you just didn't talk about it, then everyone would be unified. And so I felt that a lot in a lot of different situations. And I, I know there were a lot of times where I thought, well, I can just stop talking about it because it's not like it's comfortable for me either um, to put myself out there in this way. But I think I felt like, gosh, when I do that, I'm exchanging um, a real connection here. And I feel more and more separated from these people or this person um, in my silence and in my just refusing to bring up the hard things. And so I think what I've discovered with some individuals and, and some people is that when we've gone there, when we've allowed ourselves to kind of sit in the discomfort of how we're fractured or why we're fractured or why someone doesn't like when I keep bringing things up or, um, and, or I don't like what they say in response. When we sit in that and try to keep moving towards one another, I feel like that that's when we have a chance at real unity and a deeper commitment to one another. And, you know, it kind of, pulls us into this belief that, that I have, but sometimes feel like, is this still true that we belong to one another and that our stories belong to one another, that we need them. Um, and if we can't get there, then I don't think that we can really live out a unified community. Um, so yeah, so that's, I guess, step one. (laughs) And I've been seeing that in some relationships. I mean, I see both. I see where there's just a refusal and that chance at a deeper unity isn't there, even though people are saying, we need to be unified. We can't be divided anymore. Um, But there's an unwillingness, you know, to kind of go there and kind of work through what it would mean to actually be unified. And so, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That is helpful. And is my prayer that we will all sit with, you know, that and think about the ways that we feel rushed beyond discomfort, Mm -hmm. uh, because it really does require us to check and reflect on those things and how we can then meet others in that space, learn from them and even share what may be on Mm -hmm. our heart as well, because you don't have to sacrifice who you are and how you feel. We just have to learn how to share it differently Sometimes, so that we can help others recognize it and empathize with us a little bit as well. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, you shared that uh, you have had 
experiences of trauma that have been passed through generations. And you talk about Han. Mm. And so I want to ask you a little bit about that. You say these experiences of trauma passed through generations and the Han we carry are not given by God as a means to an end. But what if they are the soil God uses to show us our need for Jesus and open us to love? Can you just speak a little bit about what Han is and how the Lord has just shown you how much soil he has deposited in your life to grow and develop beautiful things out of some of the ugly traumas people experience as a collection. Did you hear? Did you hear? Selah, a study of first and second Samuel, the study that I have written is now available. <laughs> I am so excited to get this into your hands, but I want you to know that we're not only going to study the scriptures, but we're going to pray together as well. This study includes six video sessions and 30 guided prayers to help us settle into worship. When you visit Amazon, you can find it there, but you can also grab it at livedooly.com slash Selah. And when you go to that webpage, you will find a freebie as well. If you've ever been interested in learning about when King David composed the Psalms and what was going on in his life at the time, I have compiled a little resource for you to really learn more about that in comparison with First and Second Samuel. Together, it's my prayer that these resources help us enjoy scripture even more. Yeah. Um, Han is something that is really prevalent in a lot of Asian cultures and in Korean culture and specifically, and it is kind of this collective um, sadness carried because of things that have happened. So a lot of nations that, you know, have gone through oppression or colonization or, you know, just any of these big things that really impact for, for centuries um, after. And so in Korea, there's like a um, well, when I was little, I didn't know the word Han, but I would watch my mom, you know, wash dishes and kind of get weepy. And she would sing this like Korean national song in Korean while she would do it. And it was like this carried feeling that wasn't specifically about the exact things that she went through, but it, it, and I felt it as a kid, like this, her longing for her homeland, her longing, you know, in essence for things to be right. Um, and so Han is something like culturally that there's, it's like kind of carried in a collective sense of suffering that we've gone through as a nation or as a, as a people and we carry it and um, express it, you know, which is, I guess, I mean, in a way they're expressing it just in general, but if it's expressed to God, it's lament. Um, and so I remember that growing up and it wasn't until I was adult that I got a word for it. And then as a believer, just kind of internalizing that and thinking, gosh, you know, I'm not that I'm glad that any of that happened. I'm not glad for any of the suffering. And I don't think God gave it to my mom or gave it to, you know, that people group, my people group or me. Um, like it was like him just placing it there so that I could know him. But as I, as you read in that quote, I mean, I think he, he has used that to create such intimacy with him and such, you know, these spaces for lament that have drawn me 
deeper into relationship with him um, and deeper into just even knowing the suffering Christ and just being able to um, find comfort in that and kind of look back on some of those stories, even the ones that aren't my own and see that God was near and see that God is near to me and see that God was near, you know, even in all of that, that is so hard to even talk about, you know? Um, So that's been really important to me. And I've really been thankful that, you know, I come from a people that um, didn't, don't run from that grief and don't run from that expression of it in a collective sense as well, that they, um, I feel like I've learned a lot just from watching my mom and it's taken a while for it to kind of, you know, make sense, but just from watching her express her grief while watching, washing dishes and not shove it down. Um, I think that's taught me so much, you know, wash, watching her do that over and over again. Like there's some things that we carry and we can't just, you know, put a bow on it or, um, you know, a pretty verse, like taken out of context to just, you know, give to someone like, you know, it's okay. Everything's okay now, but we can, we can move through that. We can carry it and we can express, you know, some of our pain and some of our, um, hurt. And sometimes we have to keep doing that. So. Yeah, sometimes we have to keep doing that. I appreciate how you spoke to that and even how you helped to clarify my question a little bit better because um, I definitely don't believe that, you know, that the Lord uh, gives us those things to hurt us, right? That he, in all of it, as you have shared, helps us to recognize the opportunity for intimacy with him in it. And so, you know, uh, I even though this is not something that I have necessarily heard people put a specific term to within the African American cultures, like you have the word Han, it is definitely something that we have dealt with over the years. And what's crazy is my dad was raised. Uh, long, long time ago, fought in the Vietnam War, it came back mm -hmm. to a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. And so even as he would tell these stories and share these things, and we would travel through the South, I, who had very little reason to feel the same trauma or to feel the same fear that he had as a young person, I still carried that. And uh, I went through a lot, but the Lord met me in it. And so I really appreciated your book. My goodness, it gave me words and, and thoughts for different uh, things that I meditate on often that I had not put words to. So thank, thank you. you. And that makes so much you know, sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You share that our ethnic and cultural identity isn't what saves us. Only mm -hmm. Jesus can do that. However, these gifts of culture and ethnicity are love letters from God. They are deliberate tools to reflect on his love and intention. And I just want to ask you here, how would you encourage someone to worship God in a place where she may find herself um, having rejected a portion of her culture for a long period of time, having hmm, some self-loathing even within herself, and having some difficulty as she navigates further? What would you share with her about how to just worship God in this space as she navigates all of those questions and feelings? Yeah. Um, first of all, um, you're not alone. 
Because I think sometimes we can feel like, you know, it's just us wrestling with those things. Um, and also um, just pay attention to the ways that God is pursuing you specifically through some of those pieces of culture that you've maybe rejected. Um, I share a lot of stories in my book, but there's one that specifically relates to soup and um, seaweed soup, myokuk, something that I had kind of pushed away as my mom offered it to me. Um, and then I had this experience, you know, years later, um, one where I started to understand the significance of it and just how deep um, my rejection of it was. Because I think initially I tried to tell myself, oh, it doesn't matter. I just don't really like it. But there was a lot more to it. And so kind of letting yourself experience some of that grief, if it comes up, when you realize, oh, how much have I actually rejected? And, you know, maybe God will give you a glimpse of that. And it can be easy to run from that. And then also, you know, if he gives you a chance, and I had this opportunity where I was on the plane and they served the same soup, you know, as the plain meal. And I really felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, this is your chance to, you know, drink it whole and have an experience that it's not just, you know, to tell your mom, oh, now I drank the soup or to say, now I'm more Korean. It's this experience with me. Um, and very much felt like, you know, it's a small thing. No one else around me was even aware that it was happening, but I very much had this experience with God where I'm drinking the soup and I'm feeling it flow down my throat and feeling like God is telling me, I love you. I love you in these pieces. I love you in the repair of some of this rejection. Um, and I'm with you in the mending. And it was this experience of just almost like not a baptism, but just this, it just felt very powerful and it was very quiet. It was very small, like on the outside, um, but it was very real. So I would say, if you have things like that, um, take them if you're ready and let God love you, um, through them. And it's okay if they're small little things and it's okay if things happen over time. I think this journey is one that takes time, like most good things. And, um, there's no rush. There's no trying to, you know, go back and figure it all out, you know, in a couple of days and suddenly live this life of embrace. I think it's one we can do in, in tandem walking with God and, and, you know, let it, let it be slow if it needs to be. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. I love that that was one that you brought out because, you know, we so often put worship in a box. We yeah. expect that the Lord meets us in a church and he does, but there are so many other places that he meets us as well, including a plane ride, right? And, mm -hmm. and the way that he loves us through that and helps us see the good, even when it doesn't feel good, is so healing. So yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. Where can everybody find this book? Tell me the dream again. We didn't even get to scrape the surface. <laughs> I had so many questions about adoption, about so much, uh, but everybody's just going to have to read the book. They're just going to have to read the book <laughs> and then get connected with you further. Yeah. So where can everybody find Tell Me the Dream Again and then connect with you? Yeah. Um, it's available almost everywhere that books are sold. It's on Amazon. Um, the publisher is Tyndale. You can buy directly from there. Or if you want to, you know, help one of your local bookstores, um, bookshop.org is great. Or, you know, they might have it. I don't know, depending on where you are. Um, but most places, it's available most places. Um, and then I am on Instagram as Tasha June B. That's mostly the one place that I go to on social media uh, the most. And then my website is TashaJune.com. So perfect, perfect. Ah, can we 
switch the conversation a little bit to a few <laughs> secrets. <laughs> uh, the first one that I want to ask you is, what are you doing on a day off? <laughs> oh, it's so hard. <laughs> uh, it's could... always so interesting. I feel like it helps us to get into you guys' mind. <laughs> yeah. If I could do anything. Um, so if my family was with me, I think a day off would include um, sleeping in, maybe driving and going hiking somewhere nearby. We don't have a ton of places in Indiana, but um, there are some kind of flat, flat hiking spots around mm -hmm. here. Um, maybe watching a movie with them or something like that. And that's just low key, but also getting out in nature. I'm not super naturey, but I love to be out under the trees. It's like God just ministers to me in such a it's such a good way. Um, if I'm totally if I'm by myself and it's a day off, oh gosh, I think I would want to um, wake up slow, maybe read, <laughs> have my coffee, maybe meet friends for a brunch, um, friends that I can just show up whole and just you know have a slow, long, good, deep conversation. Um, go for a walk for sure. I don't usually hike by myself, but maybe go for a walk somewhere where I can get under the trees or go for a bike ride. Um, yeah, maybe explore a city. So <laughs> that's wonderful. That sounds so fun. Now <laughs> I want to ask you a question. I've never asked anybody else. Oh, gosh. Uh, I've been to, <laughs> it's not hard. I don't think I, it might be, but <laughs> I've been to Korea a couple of different times and I want to ask you, where's the first place you are going when you go into Korea? What are you doing? I'm just so yeah. curious. So we're leave, we're going in a month, a month yesterday, oh, our beautiful. going back, okay. um, first time for our boys. Um, so it'll be really fun. Um, yes, I've never been with all three of our kids. So the first thing we're doing, so I think I've already like mapped out a bunch of things, but one of the things, okay. the first thing we're doing, I've already mapped out like a ton of cafes and places that we want to eat. But the first thing we're doing again, this is like, we're kind of like, I guess, you know, you can kind of figure out what we're going to do or, <laughs> but we're going to go, um, hiking like the first, the, not the first mm -hmm. day we get there, we're getting there in the evening, but the next morning we're going to go hike up, um, to this little area, not the mountain outside of Seoul, but, but there's uh -huh. like, you know, it's really hilly. It's 70% mountainous in Korea. So we're going to go hike up so, so we can see the expanse of the city and then we're going to come down and eat. So Wonderful. But there's Wonderful. This I love that. Well, that's like in my first couple of days that I want to take the kids. It's like a tteokbokki place. I don't know if you've had that. Mm -hmm. It's like rice cakes, mm -hmm. you know. So that's this one yeah. place. Um, oh, what is it called? I'm forgetting the name. Is it Nakshidona? It's like um these little place, like it's like a a couple letters of each word that's ba basically like sit down, eat, and then pay and then go. Like, but you go and they cook it in front of you and it's like rice cakes and you add ramen and different mandu and you, you know, family style. I can't wait to take them. So I love it. I love it. And it's funny that it's, it, it, the name represents that, right? Because I've never been to a restaurant in Korea where you actually sit down, pay and go like after you eat, like everybody stays for hours. Yeah. And it really does help you slow down. You know, it was uncomfortable for me at first. I was like, why are we always the last ones in the first yeah. ones out? Um, <laughs> it's weird. But eventually you kind of slow down and you learn to enjoy your meal as well. Yeah. So that is so cool. I love that. And I can't it wait to see pictures. Been. 
That's so fun. Yes. So I've been to Seoul. I've been to Busan. I okay. did not get to go hike. We did a ton of walking, right? We went oh, to yeah. a couple of different villages and stuff outside of those areas as well. So we did a ton of walking, but I really wanted to go hiking and I did oh. not get to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> So So it's just beautiful. I hope you guys have such a good time. The last question that I want to ask you is in this fast paced culture, we know you're going to be slowing down over a couple of (laughs) meals very soon. But what do you do to slow down? Mm, I think um, I'm I've become more aware of my capacity. Um, I've always been a slow paced person. But um, it's not until recently that I felt comfortable saying that without shame and living into that. And so mm. for me, um, I think it's just realizing, okay, well, just because, you know, the day is pretty open, um, my day depends on the whole week and how full it is and um, the things that have happened prior. And so really just telling myself, it's okay. If I say, you know, I can't, I can't do something or I can't, or I can't, I can't, you know, have a due date on this day or whatever, because, of my capacity and just being really aware of it, even though it seems like when I just look at a calendar and it might look blank for three days, but it's not, you know, so taking into consideration all the other things that are going on in my life um, and even emotionally um, during that time frame that, you know, aren't going to show up on my calendar hours, but, but are very much something that take up space and, and really impact how I can show up you know, in those things that I do schedule. So um, for me, it's, it's that, and it's also some rituals, you know, that I don't do every day, but try to. So like going for a short walk, having tea with my husband. um, And it's not this long drawn out thing, but it's something that slows both of us down. And we found that when we have it and when we can do it and try to do it pretty regularly, it just changes the whole week. So these simple, simple things. So I love that. I love that. We need more people like you in our lives. People that just are like, I'm leaning into my slow nature. We need that. (laughs) Very soft, like. (laughs) It's refreshing. It really is. (laughs) Uh, This has been a delight. I'm just so grateful to talk with you. Would you be so kind as to pray us out? Yes, I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight to get a little glimpse of you. So. Oh, God, um, I just thank you for Liv. I thank you so much for the women who listen in and maybe men to her podcast and just um, those that she's pastoring and leading through this space. Um, We just pray for anyone that's listening now. And I pray that just that you would be helping them be aware of how you're pursuing them, how you have knit them together so wonderfully. God, I know that this is a lifelong thing that we learn. But I pray that just a special blessing over each of them, that you would help them to not only know, but to feel and understand in a deep way, your love for them down deep into the details of their ethnicity, of their personal story, um, and that you even love them and have been with them in some of their pain and some of their family's pain that they carry. So I pray you'd give them safe spaces to acknowledge that safe spaces to receive your love and to live that out um, from from that point on. We love you. Um, We are so thankful for how you love us and how you never stop. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. Mm. That conversation was good for my soul. I pray that you can 
and say the same. If there's anything that resonated with your heart, which please head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Audible and leave a rating and review. It will truly bless this podcast more than you know. Now, in the meantime, I am on Instagram at Candid Live, and it would be an honor to connect with you there. Talk to you soon. Love you.